1: Welcome everyone to episode 29 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you?
2: Hi, good. I'm prepping myself to get serious again this week after our Patreon episode last week, which was anything but.
1: It was. It was not serious at all. We got a good response to it though. So we that did. Was, yeah, we had a lot of fun on there, so we'll probably... Try and do something more along those lines next time as well.
2: Yeah, viral YouTube video watching paying off.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And we've got some more Patreon shoutouts this week, Chloe.
2: Yes, thank you and welcome to John, Haley Coyle, Kayla, Judy, Pavla, Courtney Fraser, someone with the username Driver Fatigue Awareness Day, Shereen Newman, Melissa Spears, Chris Imlach, Brian Williams and Jenna.
1: Driver Fatigue Awareness Day. Hello.
2: There was no other name there, so I'm sorry, whoever that is. If you want to tell us your name, we'll change it. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: thank you for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. Today, we head back to the early 1980s for a case that spans several years and a couple of suburbs in Melbourne's southeast. Frankston and Tainong North nowadays are part of the Melbourne urban sprawl, even though they're both about an hour outside of the CBD, but back then... The area was much more rural, with vast stretches of farmland and very few houses. Frankston, located on the eastern shore of Port Phillip and to the north of the Mornington Peninsula, boasts beaches that are some of the most popular in the state and some of the cleanest in the whole of Australia. On the flip side, Frankston has some mixed reviews in modern times, with people describing illicit activities and commission housing rife with drugs and violent crime. Some 60 kilometres away sits Tainong North, a low-population suburb in the West Gippsland region. It sits near the Weatherhead Range Mountains and is near to the State Park and Forest Reserve. It was back in the 80s and still is today a small country suburb with only a few hundred residents. In the 1980s, both of these suburbs would gain national attention for the heinous crimes that took place there. This case is a big one involving many players with some familiar names and some unfamiliar names. It's quite possible this case is even bigger than we know. We might only have a small piece of a much larger and darker puzzle. 6th of December. 1980, around 2pm. Graham Brenchley and Tom Luby were enjoying a day out together, a day of fox hunting, near an old sand quarry. This area was in Tainong North, around Brew Road. The men had permission to hunt there. Fox hunting was probably a favourite activity of theirs, or perhaps one they did often. For Graham and Tom to be able to hunt any foxes, They first had to be lured out from safety and into the area where they were. To do this, the men dumped lamb offal, otherwise known as the animal's entrails or organs, apparently a delightful fox snack. They were along a secluded bush track near the quarry, but Graham changed course so he could follow a wallaby track. Unfortunately for Graham, what he spotted next was not a wallaby. It wasn't even a fox. It was a grey stocking, with toe bones sticking out of them. Then, the body of an older woman. Shockingly, he and Tom saw a second body before hightailing it out of there to contact the police. Not at all what Graham and Tom had been hunting for that day. Alison Rook was a 59-year-old mother of six. She lived alone in her modest one-bedroom unit in Frankston. She was known to be good at bingo and friendly with her neighbours. One of her sons, 24-year-old Ivan, was a South Australian police officer.
2: On the morning of the 30th of May 1980, a Friday, Alison went out in her Holden, but soon returned home when she experienced car trouble. So she had had a coffee with a neighbour, who she told she'd instead be taking the bus to Frankston Shopping Centre, where she planned to do her grocery shopping at Ritchie's and pay her real estate agent, Wall Jones, for her property maintenance fees.
1: She left for this bus around 11am, and told her neighbour that she expected to only be gone for an hour to an hour and a half. It's believed that Alison arrived at the bus stop to wait for the transport that would travel along Frankston Dandenong Road. The bus driver could not remember whether she got on the bus or not. There were alleged sightings of her with her friend, we'll call him Robert, at 11.30am, playing lunchtime bingo at Bay City Complex. But this didn't match the timeline laid out by her neighbour.
2: Another neighbour thought they had heard her in her backyard with a visitor between 5 and 6pm that night, Alison had five bottles of beer in her fridge, more than what was usual for her, so it was theorised that she had been expecting guests. Beyond the alleged or assumed activities lay the reality. Alison's daughter, Elaine White, rang her mother several times during the day, as they had planned to watch Elaine's husband play with his band that night. But when she wasn't answering, she and her brother Kevin climbed through the window to find the home appeared undisturbed. The two sets of keys that existed for the house were not found.
1: After hearing of his mother's disappearance, Ivan, the police officer's son, said, When I heard the news that she went missing, I had a feeling I wouldn't be seeing her again. Unfortunately, Ivan was right. On the 5th of July 1980, just 37 days later, an off-duty police officer was walking his dog when he stumbled upon Alison's body in a shallow grave. It was located on McClellan Drive in Frankston, partially hidden by Scrubland, and was not wearing any clothing. She was only three kilometres from her bus stop. Police got involved and soon posted a $50,000 reward for information on Alison's murder. Bertha Miller
2: Bertha was a 73-year-old who lived in Glen Iris for more than 25 years. There, she shared a house with William Ross, her brother-in-law. She was also the aunt of former Victorian Police Commissioner Mick Miller, Bertha was an active church member at the Wesleyan Methodist Church in Paran. She often attended services, helped in Sunday school, attended activities and was the church treasurer. Her friends called her Beth and she was said to be kind and helpful.
1: On Sunday the 10th of August 1980, around two and a half months after Alison Rook's murder, it was around 10.15am and Bertha called out to her housemate William to say that she was on her way to church. She would be home late and would not be having lunch at home. Bertha headed off to a tram stop in Glen Iris to travel along High Street. A local shopkeeper saw her walk past in a knee-length dark grey tweed dress, a hat, corset and petticoat with matching handbag and shoes.
2: She caught the same transport every week, where she would meet her friend, Jessie Moore, on the tram and they would travel together. That Sunday, Jessie didn't see Bertha, but assumed she'd just caught an earlier tram to attend some sort of church business. Typically, Bertha would ring Jessie on the Monday if she missed church the day before just to let her know. This
1: time, the call would not come. She was gone. Police speculated that she never made it to the tram or even the tram stop. It's believed that around two weeks before Bertha disappeared, a man approached her on the tram when he noticed she was carrying a Bible. Bertha told a friend that she felt compelled to talk to the man about Christianity, though she would not normally engage with strangers unless there was a reason to do so. Since her faith meant much to her, she probably felt like this was a great reason to break that norm.
2: This man was never identified, but police believed he might have had something to do with Bertha's disappearance.
1: Catherine Headland.
2: Catherine was a 14-year-old immigrant from Lancashire, England. She arrived with her family in 1966 when she was just one. She lived with her parents and her older brother in Berwick, about 40 kilometres outside of Melbourne.
1: Catherine was popular in school and had a horse named Prince, who she loved dearly. She enjoyed competing in Gymkhana with Prince, which are timed equestrian speed and race events, often encouraging child participation and are generally organised by a pony club. She had been in a part-time job for about three weeks, working as a cashier at the Coles supermarket in Fountain Gate Shopping Centre, Narry Warren. She got this job to help pay for the upkeep of Prince, as her mother said they'd have to sell the horse otherwise.
2: Catherine's mother Hazel also worked at the same Coles and had helped make arrangements for her daughter to work extra shifts during the August school holidays. On the morning of Thursday, August 28th, 1980, So around two and a half weeks after Bertha Miller disappeared, Hazel left home around 8.30am and left 70 cents for Catherine to catch the bus.
1: Catherine's shift was scheduled for 12 to 4pm, so before going to work, she went to her boyfriend John McManus's house, where a few friends would meet up. These were friends from uh, Berwick High School. They were all very close, and Catherine and John were very much in love. The girls wore straps from one of their father's leather bootlaces as an accessory and token of their friendship. One friend, Vicky Reed, wore hers on her wrist while Catherine wore hers on her ankle. The friends watched TV and listened to records. Catherine stated that she didn't want to go to work that afternoon. She wanted to quit her job as she felt it was impacting on her social life. However, Around quarter past eleven in the morning, Catherine left John's place so she could catch her bus.
2: John wasn't feeling well, so he only walked her to his gate and waved goodbye, instead of walking her to the bus stop about a hundred metres away. Catherine waved back, blew John a kiss and she said she'd see him later. John wasn't to know, right then, that he wouldn't see Catherine again. She disappeared while waiting for her 11.20 bus, only a few minutes after leaving John's place.
1: In the initial stages of police involvement, there were many alleged sightings of Catherine, some of which caused great confusion. A bus driver claimed that he picked up a girl matching Catherine's description, as well as a blonde girl, at the Peel Street bus stop. But police weren't certain she even got on a bus. Some friends claimed to have seen Catherine and the blonde girl at Narry Warren around 2:30 p.m. that afternoon, but this wasn't confirmed and the police later treated this sighting as unreliable information. One theory was that she may have decided to hitchhike, which was not uncommon in the early 80s because she only had 70 cents on her. A bus driver that regularly drove in the same area told police that he believed he saw her hitchhiking along Princess Highway many times before.
2: Or perhaps she ran away with an older man. Or maybe John got her pregnant and he was hiding her away. This theory got John's house searched a week after Catherine disappeared and it stuck for a long while afterwards. Or, just maybe, she accepted a ride with a stranger who was familiar with the area and he kidnapped her or caused her harm.
1: Anne-Marie Sargent Anne-Marie was 18 and living in Cranbourne with family friends. She was known to have a bubbly personality and to love children. On the 6th of October, 38 days after Catherine Headland went missing, Anne-Marie was travelling from her mother's home to a nearby Commonwealth Employment Service office in Dandenong, it's probably what we'd refer to as Centrelink nowadays, she was going to claim a benefits cheque. She also needed to visit the post office in nearby Clyde.
2: Though she was unemployed at the time, she had previously worked at a toy shop, a poultry processing plant and a supermarket and because she didn't have much money, she tended to hitchhike to get around. Unfortunately, Anne-Marie never made it to her destination. Her father, Frederick, believed she was picked up while hitchhiking on this early October day.
1: News of her disappearance included information about a previous operation she'd received. Anne-Marie had a small drainage tube sticking out from her skull to remove fluid from her brain after this operation. News stated that a knock to her head could be fatal. Nuramol Stevenson
2: Nuramol was a 34-year-old Thai woman who married an Australian farmer, Wayne, in Thailand in July 1987. In August of the next year, she and Wayne arrived in Australia to live, leaving her two children in her parents' care. They first came to Darwin, then lived in Cairns, Mission Beach, Lismore, Sydney, Wollongong, Lake Entrance, Melbourne and finally Dean's Marsh.
1: Nuramol's friends knew that she was deeply homesick and unhappy living in Australia. She and Wayne returned to Thailand to visit family for the month of May in 1980, and it took a lot of persuasion from Wayne to convince Nuramol to come back to Australia. On the 28th of November that same year, they and another Dean's Marsh couple went to a George Benson concert in Melbourne. This occurred about 59 days after Anne-Marie Sargent disappeared. Afterwards, they stayed the night with friends in Hartwell, a suburb about 80 kilometres away from the Tainong area. The next day, Nurimol went to Camberwell Market to buy ingredients for dinner. The other three didn't come back home until after 9pm that night, missing dinner.
2: Along with some news about friends they had planned to visit without her, Nurimol was angry. She and Wayne fought. She told him how unhappy she was in her new life, so she chose to sit outside in the car for the night instead of coming inside. Wayne reported that she simply refused to come into the house and that he checked on her three times during the night, each time insisting on staying in the car. The second time he went out, she was walking down the street, and the third time she was talking to a guy in a car who appeared to be speaking Thai but had a European accent.
1: When he went out the following morning around 6am and at dawn, Now on the 30th of November, she wasn't in the car or in the street like before, and like some of the other women we've already talked about, she was just never seen again. Theories existed about her attempting to take public transport to her home but not making it, however, at that time of night it was unlikely any transport services were running. Other theories were that she was offered a lift by someone who harmed her, or that she was forcibly taken. Three bodies found.
2: Only six days after Neuramol was last seen, and we're back following the two men from the beginning of the episode, Graham Brenchley and Tom Luby, the fox hunters who stumbled across two bodies near an old sand quarry in Taiyong North. After contacting police about what they'd found, they would have no idea that officers would find yet another body while searching the area the very next day.
1: As mentioned before, Graham spotted toe bones poking through grey stockings, then another body on their hurried way out of the area. The toe bones would be found to belong to Bertha Miller, whose remains were only skeletal but were fully clothed. The second body would be identified as Anne-Marie Sargent. Only her bones remained, except for the small drainage tubes sticking out from her skull from the surgery that we mentioned previously. She wasn't wearing any clothes, but the tube helped police to identify her. Very nearby was the third body of Catherine Headland. Her remains were skeletal and naked, except for the leather bootlace strap around her ankle. She was identified by that and her three teeth that were found close by through the help of a specialist forensic dentist.
2: Graham, one of the unfortunate men to come across this horrific scene, said that the bodies were covered with branches, but did not seem like they were extensively hidden. He also said the killer would have had to have known the area really well to have found the spot.
1: Because this area was covered in thick scrub, police had to use a scrub clearing machine to look for clues here. But clues were hard to find. No physical remnants like tyre tracks or footprints could be found and the length of time between the women being murdered and the time their bodies being discovered was long enough that decomposition had well and truly taken effect. And clues on each body were virtually non existent.
2: So these three disappearances, which hadn't been connected before, were now clearly linked. More on this investigation later on.
1: Joy Summers
2: Joy, aged 55, lived in Frankston North with her longtime partner William Cotter, referred to as Bill. Joy often shopped with Bill as he had suffered a stroke two years earlier. She herself had some memory loss and only partial use of her right hand.
1: But on the 9th of October in 1981, around 10 months after the discovery of the three bodies in Tainong North, Joy decided to go shopping by herself, as Bill had had several medical appointments scheduled that day. At 7am, Joy ate her normal breakfast of toast, eggs and coffee. She left her home after 1pm, leaving a note for Bill that said she'd gone out and taken the string bags. This marked the first time she'd ventured out alone since Bill's stroke. She waited at a bus stop on Frankston Dandenong Road, the same road as Alison Rook disappeared from, so she could get some lamb from the local butcher. She had $66 on her as well as her bank book with about a $1,990 balance as she was thinking about buying a television set for her bedroom.
2: Several people saw her at the stop, but... When the bus came at 1.20pm, Joy was no longer there, and by 6.30pm, when she hadn't returned home, Bill called the police. He was certain that Joy would not accept a lift from a stranger, and that she was even scared of traffic. Police searched the now familiar area near the sand quarry in Tayong North, as well as the location that Allison's body was found on McClellan Drive in Frankston, if we cast our minds back to our first victim, but the searches were to no avail. Instead. Joy's body was found on Sunday the 22nd of November, 44 days later, by a man collecting firewood. And
1: this is also going to sound familiar. Her body was near the intersection of Sky Road and McClellan Drive, similar to Alison Rook, and only a few kilometres from where she was found. Joy's body was also stripped of all her clothing. This happened nearly a year after Nirmal Stevenson's disappearance and right around 10 months after the three bodies were found near the quarry, as we mentioned before.
2: It would be nearly two and a half years later, on the 3rd of February 1983, that another body was found. Two men pulled into the area, which was opposite a truck stop on the Princess Highway, as they needed to repair a punctured trailer tyre.
1: One of the men, Barry Davis, who was a former VFL player, went for a short walk to stretch his Legs, when he saw a bone in the scrubland. This was approximately 50 metres off the road and on the opposite side of Brew Road from where Bertha, Catherine and Anne-Marie had been found.
2: The bone was reported to police at the Warrigal Police Station. A body was then found. It was badly decomposed with other bones exposed. There were no clothes at the scene.
1: The body would later be identified as Nuramol Stevenson, taking our victim tally in this case to Six. Hi, I'm Barney Black.
0: And I'm Tara Saraban. And
1: we do Bloody Murder.
0: We're a weekly true crime podcast that focuses on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia.
1: And indeed around the globe.
0: We're a comedy podcast with a dark sense of humour.
1: But we're dead serious about murder and the people it affects.
0: We find humour in some unexpected places.
1: But never at the expense of the victims or their families.
0: We've been described as the blue cheese of podcasting.
1: Addictive, strong and satisfying. And a bit stinky. I am not. You know you are. Bloody Murder. Murder is available on your favourite podcatcher. In the early stages of the police investigation, the cause of death of all six women could not be 100% concluded. They believed that the most likely method was strangulation. Similarly, most of the bodies were stripped of both clothing and possessions. It's uncertain if this was a means to try and conceal each victim's identity or whether the killer might have taken them as a sort of trophy to represent their crimes.
2: Another similarity between the victims was that they were all on foot, with most of them planning on using some form of public transport at the time they went missing. Some of them may have been trying to hitchhike. It was also suggested by police that the women likely knew or trusted their abductor because of the lack of witness accounts about seeing anything out of the ordinary or suspicious.
1: Police set up roadblocks in the surrounding area to ask for information, with one place near Bertha Miller's home. From that, they learned that she had accepted lifts from strangers before. This is despite her brother-in-law saying that she would never do that. And near the bus stop where Catherine Headland went missing, police set up a dummy wearing her clothes in the hopes of sparking the memory of witnesses who may have seen her or remembered any helpful information. Around 2,000 interviews were conducted, with around 11,400 pages of police notes taken, along with detailed coronial inquests.
2: It's important to note here that the six women's disappearances and murders were not initially linked together until the three bodies were found near one another at the quarry. The bodies found in Frankston and Tayong North were originally treated as separate crimes. It was only later on that the similarities became apparent and therefore police connected all six of the murders.
1: Speculations Some found interesting links between this case and the Truro murders that happened a decade earlier in the 1970s in South Australia which we covered a few months back in episode 19 of True Blue. This was more conjecture, no official links have been made public by police, and we know that Christopher Worrell died in February of 1977. More speculation surrounded Neuramol Stevenson being found in the same area, essentially across a nearby busy road, some think this is a coincidence, and that the Tainong North and Frankston murders should be treated as a separate set of crimes.
2: In a detailed analysis by the Bureau of Criminal Intelligence, they said the same person murdered the Sand Quarry Three, and that there were marked differences to the other three. It stated that the person or persons who placed the bodies near the Sand Quarry off Brew Road, Tayong North, took care in a way he or they placed the bodies. Such care was not shown in the placement of the bodies of the other three victims. Evidence
1: pointed to the fact that the murderer must have known the remote sand quarry area well and probably thought the bodies would never be discovered. Investigators believed that he scoped out the scene before even committing the murders and had sawed off branches to further obscure the surroundings. The report also suggested that there was... Some thought to how and where they might dispose of a body and suggest that he or they may have planned to commit a particular offence if and when the opportunity arose. As the other bodies were left within 50 metres of busy roads, it seems as though they were placed there as a matter of convenience instead of deliberately or done in a stick-to-the-plan kind of way. So, were the police searching for one murderer, two, Or even three?
2: Well, a 1985 case review by the Bureau of Criminal Intelligence indicated that there were three killers. To accept this theory, here's what we'd have to believe. Two individual serial killers were both targeting women on foot, both dumping their bodies in scrub areas, both removing clothing and or personal items, and both stopping their killings around the same time. Alison, Neuramol, and Joy, victims one, five and six respectively, were all found near main roads in less isolated places, leading analysts to believe that they were dumped in the best available location the killer had. But as the
1: Sand Quarry 3 were more isolated and placed with care, and therefore seemingly more victim selection and deliberate thought was involved, this suggested five of the women were killed by two killers. Then, as pure coincidence, Neuromol Stevenson was left nearby creating the possibility of a third killer. A coronial inquest was held at the Hawthorne Coroner's Court by Coroner Anthony Ellis for the four Tainong North murders. And on the 12th of June 1985, his findings were released. Upon hearing the evidence, he found that there were great differences in the ages and social backgrounds of the four victims. He also found that he was unable to decipher how, when or where the women died. Because of this, he had to return an open verdict.
2: Around eight years after the murders, police received typed letters and the family of Catherine Headland received a handwritten Christmas card talking about the crimes. The card, from December 1988, boasted these murders would make the Truro murders in Adelaide look like kid stuff. The card read, ''I hope in writing you I do not cause you or your family any stress.'' I can comprehend the pain and agony you have endured to lose a loved one, Catherine, not knowing when or if the perpetrators, singular or plural, will ever be caught. Well, the new year may be a good year for you. Things may unfold. The name of the perpetrator, whose deeds make Tarot look like kid stuff. P.S., I'll keep in touch. Sometime in the new year, a non friend. There were spelling and grammar issues throughout the writing.
1: Then, a letter postmarked the 1st of May 1989 was sent to the then Victorian Police Chief Commissioner, Cal Glare. The typed letter, which also had spelling, grammar and punctuation problems, contained the following. Is the Tainong file gathering dust? Did you know you were dealing with a mass murder in a scale that's never been seen in this country? went on to mention that police never found Catherine's sterling silver bluebird earrings or Bertha's brooch, information that had never been released to the public. The writer went further to ask if they had reached a dead end and asked if they needed help.
2: Police were able to trace the typewriter the letter was written from back to Pentridge Prison, Police investigated the lead and were reported to not believe that the typist and the killer were the same person, and that the typist apparently stated he just wrote them because he was feeling empathy for the victim's families. One of the letters alleged another victim, who was later discovered to be unrelated to this series of murders, so that further cast doubt on its validity.
1: Interestingly, it was also reported that a notorious serial offender was also housed in Pentridge at this time and his name has come up on the person of interest list in this case. We'll get to him shortly. In 1990, the Bureau of Criminal Intelligence chose to re-examine these cases. This investigation became the end to the three-killer theory. The coincidences in location and MO were just that, too coincidental. It's not likely that two separate killers had the same MO in the same area and at the same time. They found that it was probable that the same person was responsible for murdering all but Neuromol, as they didn't have enough facts to draw that conclusion.
2: Police analysis concluded that, There is nothing to suggest that the offender or offenders selected their victims because of specific characteristics common to the women. It appears that each of them were selected at random. Who they were were not criteria for their selection, but where they were. This analysis also suggested who police felt was the best suspect, but we'll come back to him later.
1: Eight years later, in 1998, a task force was created known as Operation Lindhurst, which was headed by Detective Senior Sergeant Clive Rust. It was instigated by Mick Miller, who was the previous Victorian Police Commissioner, and he'd retired in 1987. His aunt was Bertha Miller, one of the victims as we said, so he didn't want to interfere with the investigation at the time. However, upon his retirement, he dove headfirst into the case. He even theorised that the murderer could be one of his distant relatives. He wanted police to re-examine the man's alibi. Miller approached the chief commissioner at the time, Neil Comrie, about his distant relative theory and Neil agreed to reopen the case. But this wasn't easy. Because it was now 1998 and the crimes were committed in the early 80s, officers involved in the original investigation had moved on to other work or had retired. Some of the witnesses had died and others had difficulties remembering back that far.
2: Facts and the suspect in the case were sent to international serial crime experts in Canada and the US to conduct crime profile examinations and criminal intelligence reviews. Their results supported the same main suspect that police already had. His details were released to the media in 2001 without naming him, as he had been interviewed by police many times.
1: Theories So before we get to the list of suspects, we'll briefly cover some of the theories swirling around, both initially and later on in the investigation. Early on, a theory popped up that the killer was a man dressed as a woman to lure his victims. This was based on calls from women to police hotlines that mentioned spotting a taxi driver or man dressed as a woman. A newspaper at the time even stated the police were looking for such a man. A fully padded bra was in fact found in the original search of the Tainong North location, which did not belong to any of the victims was also of a type that men would often use to disguise themselves as women. That's a thing, apparently.
2: Another theory painted the killer as being driven by sexual motives since the bodies had been found naked. But it seems unusual considering the age ranges of the victims and that they didn't share many characteristics. Later on, thoughts were that the killer really did select his victims at random, with the one connector being that the women all accepted his offer of a lift. It was unlikely that a copycat or other killer was involved because of the short time frames between each victim's disappearance. Mick Miller
1: weighed in again with his theory that suggested Bertha, Catherine and Anne-Marie were not victims of a random attack at all. He believed that the murderer was known to all three of the women. Further, he thought that Catherine and Anne-Marie were molested and then murdered. But he thought that his aunt Bertha had been wrongly chosen because the killer thought she was wealthy, which seemingly she was not, and then killed her to keep her quiet. If the single killer theory is correct, in light of the murders happening so close together but suddenly stopping, perhaps something happened to the killer like him being imprisoned on another offence, being hospitalised or dying close to that time. We don't really know why he stopped.
2: And I suppose you'll be able to see where we're going with these details now. This is not a case we'll be able to wrap up with a nice tidy bow at the end. This is an unsolved case. So now, we'll begin looking at the list of suspects and persons of interest.
1: Taxi driver.
2: Our first unlikely suspect was a taxi driver. Numerous sources gave descriptions to the police that pointed towards a taxi driver that may have been involved. It said the person was seen in the area... But police eventually tracked them down and they were cleared of these murders, but were charged with some other unknown offences.
1: Robert. Then there's a man we'll call Robert. He was said to be a close friend of Alison Rooks, and we mentioned him towards the beginning of this episode. Some thought that he and Alison were playing bingo together, but oddly, Robert was never identified, even after police released a photo fit to the local newspaper so he remains unknown and subsequently uncleared to this day. Wobbly Wheel Bandit
2: Now we come to the so-called Wobbly Wheel Bandit, a weird nickname to be sure. This suspect was brought up by Adrian Tame on the TV series Sensing Murder. Tame said that it could be a driver who would motion for women to stop and then tell them that their back car wheel looked wobbly. He would offer to help the women fix the car and then when under the car would look up their skirts. Classy. Tame said that, in one case, the bandit was charged and convicted of rape, but was eliminated in this murder investigation.
1: Miller's relative. And now we're on to who are considered to be the three persons of interest in this case, much higher on the police radar than those prior. The first being one we've already mentioned, the distant relative of both Bertha and Mick Miller. This relative obviously knew Bertha, but he also knew Catherine, and there's a strong possibility he knew Anne-Marie as well.
2: But he produced a time card as his alibi, which cleared him as a suspect at the time. Although later on there were suspicions that the time card wasn't sufficient proof to say it couldn't have been him. Perhaps someone else helped him punch his card, maybe he forged his time after the fact, or even snuck out of work and came back during the day.
1: He wasn't known to be a good factory worker, as he often called in sick or took leave, so those don't sound like impossible scenarios. He lived in the area and was aged in his 20s. It was also reported that this guy had made an unwanted sexual advance towards Catherine in the past. Nonetheless, rightly or wrongly, as far as we gather, this guy doesn't appear to be too high on the modern day list of persons of interest. Raymond Edmonds. And now we come to a repulsive criminal on this list, Raymond Mr Stinky Edmonds.
2: Raymond murdered two teenagers from Shepparton, Abina Medill and Gary Haywood, in 1966, but wasn't arrested until 1985. The police believed he was also involved in 32 rapes and is a suspect for several other murders over a 20-year span. Raymond has refused to speak to police but has allegedly told a fellow sex offender in prison that he had killed dozens of women and that, if I told them everything i have done, they'd neck me.
1: The Casefile podcast, in their coverage of this case, noted that one of these typed letters we mentioned that was sent from Pentridge to police indicated the writer knew Raymond Edmonds and said he'd made self-incriminating comments, implicating himself as the killer of at least one of the Tainong North victims. Raymond lived and worked in the area of the murders at one stage around Chelsea Heights I believe, so it's thought he would have been familiar with the locations involved in this case. He'd also been sexually abusing his teenage daughter at this time too. But by April 1980 he had moved to Singleton, New South Wales, so was not considered a very strong suspect as he wouldn't have been living in the area at the time of the murders, assuming they're all linked to one offender of course.
2: We'll put a pin in the case of Raymond Edmonds because we're going to talk about the notorious Mr Stinky in more detail next week.
1: And now we reach the man who is considered to be the prime person of interest. This has been said by the police and by the man himself to the media, despite court orders being in place to suppress his name. He came out to 7 News in October of 2017 and named himself, and several journalists and online news platforms have since named him as well. His name is Harold Janman.
2: As we uncover who Harold was will also weave through any correlations between him and the crimes, so that you can see for yourself what you think of this man and his connections to the serial murders. Harold lived in Frankston at one point in his life and had knowledge of the bushland surrounds. Later on, he lived and worked in Garfield, which is a suburb next to Tayong North. He worked as a barman in a hotel and as a truck driver who drove a route that passed by the aforementioned quarry.
1: Later still, he worked as a film projectionist for Mayfair Cinemas, a small city cinema. Those who worked with Harold thought of him as a prude. He was known to turn girly photos towards the wall instead of having to look at them. He thought they were offensive. With types of men like him, I guess it's somewhat unsurprising, yet extremely hypocritical, that he would denounce this sort of sexual content in public yet frequent sex shops and solicit women on the side. He also worked as a bus driver for children with special needs, taking them to and from school around 2000-2001, but he eventually had to leave this job after he failed an eyesight test.
2: It's been reported that Harold was a devoutly religious man, he attended a strict fundamentalist church in Melbourne's outer east that believed the more mainstream Christian denominations had strayed from the true teachings of the Bible. But members of this strict church felt weird about Harold, with one person quoted as saying, "He was a strange man who used religion to disguise another side to his personality."
1: As we said, Harold was a family man. He's married, has two daughters and a son. Harold and his wife, Vivalisi, had been married for more than 30 years, though we're not sure if they were still together at the time of Vivalisi's death at the age of 73 in 2006. Years before the Tainong North and Frankston murders, Harold was charged with the offence of soliciting for the purposes of prostitution. As we said just before, he frequented local sex shops and he also filled out sex advertisements in underground magazines, saying that he only wanted to watch.
2: Then, after the murders, in August of 1997, Harold was arrested during a gutter-crawling clean-up operation in St Kilda. Then, just a year later, in 1998, he was arrested again in St Kilda for approaching a woman for sex, or shall we say an undercover police officer. At the time, he was 65 years old and well-dressed in a suit and tie. During that police sweep, 70 men were picked up along with Harold.
1: When a journalist interviewed Harold in 2005, he asked him whether he had any prior police convictions. Harold appeared agitated, arms crossed and nervously stepping from foot to foot. He said, I do not believe that I have ever been charged by police for anything. I do not have any recollection of being charged by police. While he mightn't have believed or recalled it, the facts remain.
2: After Joyce Summers' body was found, a series of reports were made to police about a man in a black panel van who offered lifts to women in the area. At least four women reported this, also saying that when they rejected the man, he would act upset. Police identified the van as being belonging to an independent cinema in the city, and it turns out, Harold used this van during his employment.
1: This van was impounded and thoroughly examined, along with Harold's house. He said that the van had not been cleaned in months, though no evidence was found to link him to the murders. Police watched him day and night until it was called off after four months. Harold admitted that he often offered lifts to women on the Frankston Dandenong Road, but said that most people do not accept lifts from me, and I would say my success rate is about 2 to 3%. I cannot recall the number of people, particularly female, to whom I have offered lifts, but I would estimate the number generally over the past 18 months to be about 50 or even more.
2: He would pick up both males and females and specifically mentioned mainly driving elderly women if they agreed to get in his vehicle. As his defence, Harold claimed he didn't know why he offered lifts to people, and he didn't know why the majority of them were females. He further said that he had never harmed anyone while either offering or giving anyone a lift. He
1: went on to say that it was just to be friendly and to have someone to talk to. Some women have to wait at the bus stop for a long time, and I help them by giving them a ride. You never know what will happen next. All the schools have got drugs in them now, and the young kids are causing trouble. So Harold's just a caring guy, it seems.
2: His wife, Vivalesi, was angry when she first found out that Harold offered lifts to strangers, but she said she understood why he did it. Once, when they lived in King Lake, she was hospitalized for quite some time, and as they did not have a car at the time, Harold could only visit her if he hitchhiked to the hospital. Vivalessi couldn't believe that Harold could be guilty of any offences. She simply thought he offered lifts to return the favour for the lifts he got earlier in their life together.
1: Both Alison Rook and Joy Summers disappeared between eleven thirty AM and one30 PM on the thirtieth of may nineteen eighty and 9th of October 81, respectively. They both disappeared on a Friday, when Harold only worked the afternoon shift from 4pm to 2am. Please asked Harold if he had offered Joy a lift, to which he replied, Sir, I may have, I honestly may have, but if I did, I didn't kill her. I wouldn't do anything like kill anyone.
2: We know that several women reported the man in the black van, which they claimed was on Fridays. To one woman who rejected the offer of a lift, the man said that she didn't know what she was missing, and another woman said that Black Van was parked outside her home. When she rejected the offer, the man got upset and turned his car around, angrily screeching his tyres in the process.
1: At the time of the disappearances of the women from the sand quarry, Harold was often seen parked outside a friend's home in Garfield. He was spending a lot of time away from home just then, as he and Veverlessi were having marital troubles. Around 1.30am on the 21st of October 1981, two detectives interviewed Harold at the cinema where he worked. Joy Summers had been missing for less than two weeks, and they wanted to ask him some questions.
2: Around 12 hours later, Harold rang police to tell senior detective John Keely that he had an alibi, He alleged that the day in question, he drove to Frankston Bank with his wife to withdraw some money. His wife corroborated this alibi, but the bank manager told police that no money was withdrawn or deposited into Harold's account that day. There was, however, a withdrawal the day before, but it was a different branch, some 20 kilometres from his house.
1: Another alibi given for him seemed to hold more weight when up against the timeline for Catherine's disappearance. The record of his work hours showed that he was working that day. As he worked opposite shifts to his boss, he kept records of the hours he worked to show his boss that he was there. Some suspicion has been cast on those records, as it's thought they could have easily been forged or manipulated, but nothing along those lines has been confirmed.
2: Harold further cooperated with the police and showed them where he often stopped to give or offer lifts. He identified nine different stops – including two where Alison and Joy would have been waiting. But Harold was far less forthcoming when police began asking him questions. For example, police asked if he knew where Sky Road was. He responded that he had never heard of it. Curious as his workplace was just off Sky Road.
1: But Harold later claimed that at the time of the police asking him that question, he was sitting in the back of a police car on the way to the station and they were firing a lot of questions at him. Also when they drove past Sky Road and he was asked, he was looking in the other direction so claimed that he didn't know it. Then police took him to the location where the bodies were found. In that area, Harold became visibly nervous and sweaty. He walked around as the police had asked him to but never walked in the immediate vicinity of where the bodies had been lying. As we know. Much of the site had been cleared of bush and scrub during the investigation, and investigators said that without prior knowledge, one wouldn't be able to tell where the bodies had been.
2: So did Harold really not know where he was walking and coincidentally avoid the right spots, or did he know the area so well that he purposely avoided them? Well, the
1: police were pretty convinced that Harold was the killer. One officer went as far to say that he thought Harold appeared ready to confess, falling in a bit of a trance while chanting religious mantras. But when he snapped out of it, he was back to speaking in a controlled way and denied being involved. Apparently this happened many times over the decades. It looked like Harold was about to spill it all, but then bit his tongue.
2: When Harold was initially identified as a suspect in the Frankston killings, he got legal advice from his solicitor, who told him not to comment when police interviewed him. However, Three days after his first interview in December of 1981, he took himself down to the Frankston police station at 7pm and asked Senior Constable Michael White, You know, I was brought in about the two murders in Frankston. Well, why haven't I been asked about the five murders instead of two? When the Senior Constable asked him which extra murders he was referring to, Harold replied, The ones in Tayong."
1: Now, this was looked at as being suspicious at the time because it was not publicly known that there was any link between the two sets of murders. FBI crime profiler Robert Ressler has said that serial killers attempt to inject themselves into the investigation of the murder or otherwise keep in touch with the crime in order to continue the fantasy that started it. So, is this what Harold was doing? It's worth noting that after Harold's first interview in that December, The murders stopped. Harold told police that he was a normal bloke, but did admit to having serious marital problems, financial strain, and that his wife wanted a divorce.
2: Were these stresses enough for Harold to lash out and begin the killings? As a deeply religious man who did not subscribe to the idea of divorce, you can see how this might have greatly disturbed him. In addition, with the murders stopping so suddenly, the theory that serial killers keep going until they are either caught or until that spark that ignited them is removed is further promoted. In Harold's case, he stayed married to his wife, so perhaps that strain or motivator was removed.
1: In the 1985 review of the case, police stated four qualities that the killer would have. Access to a vehicle, they didn't work, were a shift worker or perhaps on annual leave, they had good knowledge of the Dandenong, Frankston, Beaconsfield area, and may have lived there, and that they are an opportunist. Some believe that Harold fit all four of these. Police had already established that he knew the area, including where the bodies had been found, and that he'd been caught lying before, and that he did in fact offer lifts to people regularly. But the review noted that there was a lack of physical evidence and eyewitness accounts when it came to Harold.
2: In the 1990 review of the Bureau of Criminal Intelligence, it stated that Harold was a viable suspect with weak or non-existent alibis. In 1998's Operation Lynnhurst investigation, Harold was interviewed many times. He always maintained his innocence. He again offered his alibi of working on the day that Catherine Hedlund disappeared, But police thought that this was flawed. On the flip side, if Harold's alibi was proven true, he probably could have been totally cleared of the six murders.
1: Harold took two polygraph tests. As is usual, he was first asked a series of questions to establish a baseline for his answers. These first questions were deemed to have been answered truthfully by Harold but when he was asked direct questions about the murders in both Tynong North and Frankston, deception was detected. In response to the lie detector tests, Harold said, I did not fail the tests. It was because of the way in which the questions were put. The tests were inconclusive.
2: Detective Senior Sergeant Clive Rust told the Sunday Age newspaper that they knew who the killer was and were confident in his identity. He said... We have used DNA technology, behavioural, psychological and geographic profiling methods and have been greatly assisted by receiving important new information from members of the public. We are confident in the direction our investigation is heading. We are now focusing on one suspect.
1: As we've mentioned before, in 2001, police released a detailed profile of the prime suspect to the media and held a press conference as well, all without naming him. There were enough details, though, for journalists to land on Harold. The media weren't as selective as the police, and they were willing to share these details. They named him and published his photo.
2: Harold's response was in the form of a statement through his lawyer to say that he was innocent. Detective Senior Sergeant Rust stood by the police's decision to release the details that they did. He again reiterated that they were confident they knew the person responsible – Around 2002 or 2003, police flat out told Harold that he was the only suspect left. Harold, who is 87 years old now, still maintains his innocence.
0: Hold up.
1: As of the 21st of October, 2017, Detective Inspector Mick Hughes said that he and the police would start the investigation of these murders from scratch. They would re-examine the suspects and increase the rewards for each of them. The original $50,000 for each of the six murders was increased to a separate $1 million for any info that resulted in an arrest in any of the cases. So that's $6 million on the table. This is the largest sum on offer for a cold case in the state of Victoria. The day that Harold Jamman told the media he was innocent was also the same day that the $1 million rewards were announced.
2: Detective Senior Sergeant Peter Trickius, who is the head of the Homicide Squad cold case team, said that rewards can work well in cold cases as they encourage people who may be in possession of crucial information to come forward. A community page about the murders is up and running on Facebook, as well as a GoFundMe page that uses funds to raise awareness of the murders. A trailer was donated to this cause, which is attached to a mobile billboard to place in the community. This has all been within the last few months, so support for getting the message out in hopes of finding answers, and eventually the killer, is still very strong. We're also going to post two maps on our social media for you all to have a look at. They detail the many locations and points of interest in these crimes. They're really helpful to get a visual of the many case aspects we've spoken about today.
1: No closure for those left behind. So with that, here's some final thoughts about the aftermath of these horrible crimes left for grieving family members to live on and deal with. Alison Rook's son, Keith, has said that finding the killer would help bring closure to his family and would help them to talk about their mother. They want her to be remembered in a more positive light as a great person, not for what happened to her, which is totally understandable and I'm sure hard to do. He said, We've had a traumatic time and it's a sad way to lose our mum, a mother of six, and she was a great mum and now everyone's had to move on. It's a lot of time but we still would love to see some finalisation.
2: Anne-Marie Sargent's brother, Peter, commended police for their efforts in the continued investigation. He stated that his family had been emotionally wrecked by Anne-Marie's death and he lamented about the pain they feel in the background of their lives every single day.
1: The family of Catherine Headland have mostly kept to themselves since her death. As a family who valued their privacy, they eventually sold their home and moved away. To echo that sentiment as well, her good friend, Vicky Reid, said that she still doesn't drive in the area very often. It just brings back too many sad memories. She thinks of Catherine almost every week. She now has three children of her own and named her eldest Catherine so that her friend could somehow live on.
2: Another of Catherine's long-term friends, Cheryl Goldsworthy, was forever changed. Attending primary and high school together in Berwick, they were best friends. Cheryl thinks about Catherine's family often, and to this day she doesn't feel safe. This has caused her to be far more protective of the two children she has now. And then there's Catherine's boyfriend, John McManus. His life has never been the same, and he is constantly tormented by the what-ifs. What if he'd walked Catherine to the bus stop instead of saying goodbye at the gate? Something that we know has haunted him for the past 39 years.
1: But John doesn't stop thinking about it. He thinks about her every day, until now he's never been married, and his ex-girlfriends have told him that he seems to still be haunted by something. I think we can guess what that is, and it's very sad. It goes without saying that none of what happened is his fault.
2: A memorial dedicated to Catherine is located in Acuna Park, where her friends from Berwick High School would gather to talk, listen to music and think about their friend who was taken away too soon. So
1: that's a wrap on the case as we know it to be reported. But before we get to our final thoughts, I wanted to touch on a few more interesting and speculative points we came across in research in an effort to tell the full story as fairly and thoroughly as we can. The Psychic Angle We've mentioned the Sensing Murder episode on this case earlier in this episode. It was entitled The Last Goodbye. This was quite an interesting episode I think we're all a little skeptical of psychics, but to be fair, we'll cover this off briefly. Because the information they were able to provide was truly remarkable if indeed they really didn't know about the murders, as was purported on the show.
2: The featured person of this episode was Catherine Headland. A hundred psychics across Australia were individually tested, with five being able to provide details, and two were chosen for the episode. Deb Weber and Scott Russell Hill. Scott was only given Catherine's date of birth, and Deb was given Catherine's earring wrapped in padding and placed in a sealed envelope.
1: If this was true, and they had no prior exposure to the case or any other details, they were able to discern some very identifying information about Catherine, including her age, name, that she liked horses, how long it had been since her disappearance, and the circumstances surrounding her disappearance. They then took the psychics individually, and they never met these psychics either, to various locations that were associated with the crime, including where Catherine was last seen and where her body was found.
2: Deb believed that she was walking along the road, and she was pulled into a white ute forcibly between two people head first. Deb also described the two abductors and believed they were connected to her school in some way. Scott also noted the school connection and mentioned a black car or van, but while this car was connected, it wasn't the car that took Catherine. He thought it another vehicle, potentially a ute.
1: Deb correctly identified the location of Catherine's body, and Scott was able to name Anne as someone found beside Catherine, which lines up with Anne-Marie Sargent. Deb described one of the suspects as being stocky with a goatee, but noted one was older and one was younger. Scott suggested these guys were workers from the nearby quarry at the time. Both psychics believed there were more undiscovered victims' remains in the area. Scott believed that there were three different killers, contradicting the most recent coronial and police opinions. He also identified some other possible victims connected to the location. One he was quite sure about, and that was a young girl with blonde hair and a fringe who had a West Australian connection Named Sophie.
2: But generally speaking, when it came to Catherine's murder, Deb seemed to be very tuned in to her specifically and relayed a lot of staggering information about Catherine and her case. Scott was more broader in his summations, which he described as energies and people sort of stepping forward into his field of view, and was able to provide much more about the case as a whole, including other victims and potential perpetrators.
1: Potentially linked.
2: So I looked up the AFP
1: Missing Persons Register. There was indeed a young woman named Sophie Woodman who was last seen on Friday, March the 22nd in 1980, an eerily similar time frame. While she was from WA, her and her friend had travelled to Victoria, and this is where she was last seen. Where exactly? I'm not sure. I couldn't find that. But Sophie and this friend apparently planned to reunite in Queensland, Sophie never showed and has never been seen since. Sophie had blonde hair with a distinctive fringe, as Scott the psychic described, and she was 13 turning 14, so a similar age to Catherine Headland. So make of that what you will. Another potentially linked case that we came across was the unsolved murder of Margaret Elliott in Box Hill.
2: This case has been loosely linked to the Tainong North Frankston murders, Margaret was visiting her friend, also named Margaret, Margaret Conroy, at Box Hill Hospital on the 15th of April 1975, so some five years before the first known Tainong North Frankston murders. She did not make it home, but her car was found in Box Hill, with blood on the seat and car door. Her body was found in Glen Iris. Her car clocked a much higher mileage than from her home in Berwick to the hospital – Her murder was a potential link as she resided in the same area as Catherine Headland, and her body was found near where Bertha Miller lived.
1: One final person of interest.
2: And one final
1: point I wanted to mention, and it's another person of interest that we only saw mentioned in one article about this case, but it's a name that many will be familiar with, Bandali Debs.
2: Ben Darley, along with Jason Roberts, was convicted of the murders of Sergeant Gary Silk and Senior Constable Rod Miller that occurred in 1998. Ben Darley also murdered sex workers Donna Hicks in 1995 in Sydney and Christy Harty in 1997 in Melbourne. They were both taken off the street, and he is a person of interest in other unsolved Victorian murders too. However, police believe Bendali was not cunning enough to convince women into a car with him. But was he brazen enough
1: to abduct them? Debs, a convicted serial killer, was aged in his mid to late 20s at the time of these murders, and he was from the area, in Narry Warren, smack bang in the middle of Frankston and Tynong North. He'd moved from Sydney in 1978, I believe, and was working as a labourer around this time but it appears he's not a publicly named person of interest in this case. We're going to talk more about Mr Debs and his exploits in a two-part episode in the coming weeks. But that's it. That's the case of the unsolved Tynong North Frankston murders, Chloe.
2: So that's a lot to take in, huh? There are so many people involved in this case, so many victims that have been linked and potentially more, like we said, I wish more than anything that someone was pinned for this. You know, the sheer volume of lives affected by this is so sad. There are parts of these attacks that don't really make sense to me. The ages of victims and their physical appearance doesn't follow typical patterns of someone who commits multiple murders. I heard in a press conference that the police had sent information overseas to the Behavioural Psychology Unit for assessment. They didn't comment on any findings from that specifically, but I wonder if it did reveal anything. To me, it suggests what I think many people think, that these crimes weren't committed by one person. It has to be at least two people involved. So many things about these crimes don't make sense at all, though, and I really struggle with that. When something seems pretty random and callous, it makes it so much more scary and unfair. And this is an unsolved case and there is still a significant reward for information leading to an arrest. I do believe police have been working pretty consistently with the families over the years and the cold case squad was looking into it in recent years, as we mentioned. So I really hope that helps the families in some way. I've been thinking a lot about the families and friends this week in the lead up to this episode. So many years have passed, yet their pain still feels palpable. I hope one day there is some closure and some justice is served for these crimes.
1: So I'm going to jump on the bandwagon of folks who believe these murders uh, might not be directly linked. I think there's a possibility there's more than one perpetrator and there's a couple of reasons for that which I won't go into all of but broadly speaking, the main two factors for me are that someone hasn't been charged and there's a reason for that. There's not enough evidence to charge them. And I think there's not enough evidence because what happened at some point was that evidence was being looked for to support a theory or contention and not the other way around, gathered and laid out and letting the evidence tell its own story. This probably happened way back when. So the problem then became twofold. The investigation hit a wall. I also think we stopped looking outside of the sphere that was known and subsequently we don't have all of the puzzle pieces here. And I think there's a good chance more crimes were committed by this offender or offenders, that they haven't been linked, and that there's potentially more bodies out in that bushland in Tainong North that haven't been discovered. We've said this before, you know, it's almost easier to box these things up in a neat little bundle to label them as a series of serial killings. One deranged lunatic did this, then stopped for whatever reason. It was isolated. You know, we can all reason with that and sort of sleep at night, but it's not always that simple. And the thought that it's too much of a coincidence for two or even three killers to be operating in a similar region at one time, hell yeah, it's a coincidence. It's a huge one, but it's happened before and more than once. If you look over in Louisiana in the early to mid 2000s, you had guys named Derek Todd Lee, Sean Vincent Gillis, and Ronald Dominique, all overlapping serial killers in the same area at the same time. You go back to the 70s in California, you had Randy Kraft, William Bonin, Patrick Kearney, all three of these guys, the three freeway killers they were called, overlapping in location and victim type for an extended period of time with much higher victim tallies than six. We're talking 20-plus victims each. So it happens. Granted, smaller population here and factoring the time, but it is possible. Obviously, as time goes on, this becomes less solvable. You know, there's no DNA evidence we know about. And with the rewards on offer, if that hasn't brought someone out of the woodwork, I'm not sure what will. It's a heartbreaking case. My thoughts go out to the families and friends. I hope this is one that we do see a result and conclusion with someday, Chloe, but that's my two cents.
2: Yeah, so let's move on to happy thoughts. Um, So it's been a couple of weeks because we didn't do this in our teaser that we put up over the weekend, Mm. but, and I'm sure everyone's dying to know, (laughs) my husband did the marathon, so he finished it. He did it in four hours 20, which I don't think I jinxed him. It was 20 minutes Longer than what I said in the episode where I said I wasn't going to talk about it because it would jinx him. However, I won't take responsibility for that. Yeah, no, good.
1: But there were mitigating factors. So it (laughs) was exactly hamstrings
2: and calf muscles after 42 kilometers. Yeah, absolutely. So I am super proud of him still. And he's planning his next one. And oof, it's a thing.
1: Yeah. He's going to do two, right, you said? He wants to do two next year? I
2: think so. And I think if we're saying it on here, it's definitely a thing. So, yeah, he's doing two next year.
1: (laughs) Awesome. What's yours? Well, mine is actually um, to do with our house. As you know, we're building a house at the moment. It's sort of getting to that point where it's a house now. Exciting. Yeah, you know, we're seeing all of the It's not just a
2: concrete slab. (laughs) That's
1: it, or a frame or, you know, there's walls, there's stuff going in. Um, Yeah, so pretty exciting stuff. Um, Awesome. Still be a couple of months away, but Yeah. Rolling along nicely. Nice. Yeah. Um,
2: so we're gonna do something different in our Facebook group this week. When we post our episode thread, we wanna share or ask everyone to share a happy thought with us. It's a busy time of year and some happy thought inspiration for us in the coming weeks would be great. Yeah. <laughs> so we wanna hear from you guys.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. As you said, Claude, if you could keep those uh, happy thoughts to the comments section on the episode thread. That would be great, just for the sake of order. Otherwise, it'll be a bit chaotic otherwise with dozens of posts, but that'd be really good to hear everyone else's uh, happy thoughts, as you said.
2: Definitely. And if you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd
1: like to support the show, you can head on over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you'll get bonus episodes, updates, debriefs, blooper reels, and much more to come. We're actually going to post a blooper reel in a week and a bit. So, oh, it
2: always makes me nervous. <laughs> what have I said? <laughs> and if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find the show as well.
1: Shout out to Jenny and Alyssa for the help with writing and research on this episode. We'll see you all next week for Mr. Stinky
2: Week. See you then. Bye. Bye.